Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Happy Wednesday. Thanks for being part of our Let's Go There family and hanging out with us today. We've got a big show coming up for you. I had no clue today was Wednesday, might I add. I'm just... actually really shocked when you said that i literally thought yesterday like today was tuesday i was like wait this week is just getting started what are you talking about (gasps) well yeah and i can't believe it's almost thanksgiving it's wild i know in in all honesty i haven't really talked about it much here but i'm in the mood and in the in the planning of moving right now and Mm -hmm. i literally have like less than a week until i'm into my new apartment but that has been stressful with trying to do the show and also trying to pack and trying to it's a mess moving it's a lot in the middle of a pandemic i would not suggest it i mean but you're doing it you're uh, adulting so congratulations boo (laughs) adulting is hard Okay, now coming up on the show, if adulting is hard, maybe you might want to get a snail. We're going to be talking about how snails have become the pet trend of 2020. What type of segue was that, Shira? Right. I don't know. (laughs) I was trying. Plus, one organization that's raised over $1 million to help organizations on the ground fight to win the Georgia Senate race for the Democrats. Ooh, and now that is exciting to talk about because they have raised so much money for all of these uh, local organizers. And Mm -hmm. I mean, to find out more about it, I'm, I'm really excited about it. Yeah, stay tuned for that. But let's get into some what's trending this hour. New York Governor Andrew Cuomo spoke out about Trump's handling of the pandemic or mishandling and how he's looking forward to working with President-elect Joe Biden. Here he is speaking with Joy Reid on MSNBC. Uh, I understand the indignation. Uh, I understand the pain about the way he's handling this and the narcissism. Uh, But you know what? I've been dealing with that with him for eight months. Uh, Frankly, he hasn't been any help. And uh, when we say, well, he's not helping in the transition, I don't think it's any great loss. I'll tell you the truth, because he never contributed much to begin with. And uh, Joe Biden is going to be talking to the governors on Thursday. We're arranging a call. The governors are the ones who have been handling this war, frankly. Hey, drop the mic. Cuomo. Hmm. Yeah. Cuomo's over it. <laughs> totally, to say the least. Now, Congress is stalled on a coronavirus stimulus as infections surge around the country and new state and local restrictions threaten businesses and jobs. Neither Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell nor House Speaker Nancy Pelosi have budged from their positions on pandemic relief. President-elect Joe Biden is urging Congress to approve legislation before he takes office, while President Trump has been focused, as we all know, on fighting the 2020 election results, uh, then putting any sort of action towards moving this forward or time. 
Speaking of Trump, his recent claims of widespread voter fraud in Detroit and the greater Wayne County, Michigan region in the 2020 elections are unsubstantiated. That's according to fact checkers and local journalists. On November 17th, Michigan Secretary of State Jocelyn Benson said that discrepancies in vote tallies across the state are most commonly attributable to clerical error. And here's Jonathan Kinlock, Wayne County. Board of Canvassers Vice Chairman talking to Yahoo Finance about this issue. President Trump and his uh, description of what occurred um, in the city of Detroit, um, in the state of Michigan um, specifically, uh, is totally uh, not true. Um, When you speak about a precinct being out of balance, we're talking about uh, clerical, most likely clerical errors as relates to how individuals out the night. And that was what's trending this hour. What's happening in entertainment news, Ryan? All right, let's go ahead and dive into the tea report because, whoa, crazy story. Not really. It's not really that surprising, to be honest. Well, Holly Robinson Pete, uh, she's an actress. She is claiming that Donald Trump used the N word to describe her while she was a contestant on Celebrity Apprentice. Now, during an appearance on Sirius XM's The Karen Hunter Show, um, the 21 Jump Street actress recalled spending a month filming the third season of the reality show in 2010, where she would eventually lose to Brett Michaels in the finale. So here she is talking about the moment and recalling that moment with Donald Trump. After Shortly after the finale, rumors started coming around that he had tossed out a, a, an N-word and referring to me. And I was like, huh? And then when the producer told me when it happened during the finale, I remember the moment. I wasn't in earshot, but I could see them deciding between me and Brett Michael. And Brett, I knew I wasn't going to quote unquote win. I didn't care because it was all about the money for the foundation. But um, there was a moment where he was talking with producers and they're really animated and that was when I heard that he said they want the N-word to win. Wow, right? I mean, I feel like she would not be talking out and speaking out about this if that didn't have some weight to it. And of course, rumors about Trump using this term have swirled around for years with actor Tom Arnold claiming he saw a reel of Trump's bigoted tirades and actor and comedian Noel uh, Kassler, who worked as a talent wrangler on the show, tweeting about the Pete incident last year. So there's already conversation about that moment happening. So, yeah, Donald Trump, not shocked. He's a racist. Not surprising. Not at all. Um, Now, let's move on to Megyn Kelly, right? Because uh, she's revealing something that has really been heavy on her heart. She revealed this week that she is leaving New York City and pulling her kids from far left schools that she claims have now gone off the deep end. What is she talking about? Um, So basically, (laughs) in a new episode of her podcast, The Megyn Kelly Show, um, she said that she had pulled her two sons out of their school and planned to move her daughter out of another city school as well, citing the school's responses to the uh, May police killing of George Floyd, which sparked months of racial justice protests across this country. She said, after years of resisting it, we're going to leave the city. The schools have always been far left, which doesn't align with my own ideology, but I don't really care. Most of my friends are liberals. It's fine. I come from a democratic family. I'm not offended at all by the ideology, and I lean center left on some things. So what's the issue? Why are you uprooting your children out of out of their school because of the way that their the school has responded to George Floyd. What? They're actually saying Black Lives Matter in, in the schooling right. system? Like they what's your teach, issue? 
real American history. Yeah. And they're, you know, forcing remote learning and making sure you're wearing masks. Honestly, I'm pretty sure New York is happy to lose her. Let's be real here. And we have more coming up in the next Tea Report in the next hour. So stick around. Okay, now coming up, how a Biden presidency could advance transgender rights and lead to possible backlash, though, too. That's next with The Washington Post. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan, the new Channel Q. It's Trans Awareness Week and the fight for trans rights has been in full force during the Trump presidency. But will a Biden administration finally create a a space of peace and equality? Well, joining us right now is gender and family issues reporter from The Washington Post, Samantha Schmidt. Thanks for being here. Thanks so much for having me. Now, let's step back and discuss what you wrote about in your article, which was really timely and important, about how many social workers saw what they saw from their clients in the trans community leading up to the election, because it was pretty devastating. Yeah, I, I've i always uh, felt that um, social workers and therapists often have kind of the, a real window into how the community is feeling. And I talked to a number of social workers in the D.C. area who said they saw a real buildup and a real spike in demand in uh, people seeking counseling services or asking for help and referrals to surgeries and talking about how they were rushing to get name changes. It seemed like people were kind of really anxious about the election and about what another four years of the Trump administration could mean for the rights of their community. And then when the election was actually called, it was a collective sigh of relief for a lot of people in the trans community. Yeah, it it really was. I mean, I have so many friends a part of that community and I, I know specifically that they felt like, wow, okay, this is a moment that maybe we can take a deep breath. But if you are queer, if you are trans and black, especially if you are a tr- black trans woman, that deep breath of relief doesn't really stay too long, right? And I want I wonder how when Joe Biden kind of announced and he actually said trans people in his acceptance speech, how do you think that was? Like, was that the first time we really saw a president-elect or anyone in that high position say trans people in that way and acknowledge them? Yes, that's what everyone has been saying, is that this is the first president-elect to ever specifically mention the transgender community in an acceptance speech. I mean, thinking back to the Obama administration, which would have been the last time you could imagine it coming up. I mean, he was still talking about marriage equality back in, in 2012 when he was reelected. You know, it, it was a, such a different time. And so it was a clear shift in the tone after an administration that has spent four years uh, really repeatedly erasing protections for the transgender community. And now again, we're talking to Samantha Schmidt, gender and family issues reporter from the Washington Post. Yeah, I mean, the acceptance speech was really powerful and important. How is the Biden administration going to change what was rolled back or even erased for the community during Trump's presidency? That has also been the really notable thing is that they've already released a lengthy platform that has been outlining all the things they're planning on doing. And a lot of that is reinstating policies that were rolled back by the Trump administration, protections uh, when it comes to health care, housing, education, a number of different realms of American life in, in which the Trump administration rolled back protections for the trans community. But beyond that, he's, he's starting to talk about things that usually, even before, only a few years ago, you hardly ever heard politicians talk about, which includes the epidemic of, of violence against transgender people of color, particularly trans women. He's talked about expanding access to healthcare for the LGBTQ community. He's talked about uh, criminal justice system and ensuring fair treatment of trans people in the criminal justice system. And so he, he's really talking about this across several agencies, 
yeah. in, in a much more kind of nuanced way than we've seen President-elect talk about it in the past. Well, and that's my concern, right? Like, what are some of the challenges this administration will face when it comes to fighting for a lot of the things that he said that he's basically promising to do? A lot of people are, are skeptical that he'll go far enough. And like, the trans community, especially trans activists, you know, it really depends on who you talk to and, and, and kind of where, what they see as the priority. But for example, in the DC area, a lot of uh, trans activists I know are also sex worker advocates. And they also, they feel that these, the issues go, you know, much uh, further than just kind of these symbolic gestures and some of his campaign promises that, uh, you know, he needs to really look at the systemic issues facing trans people um, you know, when it comes to criminal justice and housing and employment. And then, you know, there's also such a huge conservative resistance to, you know, advancements in the trans community. You know, you'll see that especially in the state houses, in the courts, but even in, in Washington, there's huge resistance. And depending on whether Democrats take hold of, of Senate, that'll really play a key role in whether they can actually pass legislation um, pertaining to trans rights. Well, yeah, you mentioned this anti-transgender backlash in the states. Is it worthwhile even giving that that attention or should we be more focused on the actions we need to be taking to move forward? Activists you know, are, are just as worried as ever about legislation in the states. For example, you know, in states, in places like Washington, D.C., whatever happens at the federal level doesn't affect as much the uh, rights and protections at the, you know, at the local level. But in other states, you know, there are some Uh, bills already being proposed for next year that would, for example, restrict access to transgender health care for children, for minors. And there were a whole wave of bills like these last year or or earlier this year pertaining to like hormone treatment, purity blockers for transgender minors. And a lot of people are concerned that there's actually a, you know, an emboldened uh, resistance from conservative lawmakers in the state. So, you know, these fights aren't going anywhere. All right. Well, Samantha Schmidt, thank you for your time and also for writing about these issues that are very important and we'll be following and fighting for as, you know, Biden does join the White House. Thanks so much for having me and for talking about this. Again, that was Samantha Schmidt, gender and families issues reporter for The Washington Post. Thank you so much for being here. Now, coming up, should we just stop using Bush versus Gore references as it relates to this presidential election? Well, the co-creator of Fiasco, Bush versus Gore, joins us for that conversation next in two minutes. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan, the new Channel Q. As Democrats and Republicans both debate and wait for Trump to concede, many keep looking towards the 20, uh, I keep saying 2020 election, the 2000 election. God, I'm losing track of time between Bush and Gore to justify what's happening right now. And joining us right now, he's an expert on the topic, Leon Nafok, who has a podcast out called Fiasco Bush versus Gore, an urgent exploration of the 2000 battle for the presidency and the historic Supreme Court ruling that decided it. Thanks for joining us right now. Thank you for having me. Now, does this comparison make sense? Why do Republicans keep using it? (laughs) It does make some sense. I mean, I think going into Election Day, you know, a lot of people were wondering whether we would know the winner the night of. And, you know, most people were predicting that we wouldn't. Uh, the reason 2000 came to mind then was that, you know, in that election, we, we had to wait 36 days before we knew who the pre- next president would be. And so there is sort of like a, a broad way in which there are parallels, right? The, in both cases, you have people going to vote and then a bunch of legal and bureaucratic machinations that come afterwards that slow down the process and kind of delay the uh resolution of the election, you know, and and I think, 
now that we've sort of seen over the past two weeks or so how the Trump folks are approaching this, it is clear that they're sort of trying to draw on the 2000 playbook in terms of how they are trying to, um, you know, change the vote vote count essentially and, and get a different outcome. But are there any like stark differences? Is there is it really that similar? No, I think I think there are a lot of really big differences. I mean, the most important one to my mind is that in all of the states where Trump is trying to make a stand, he is trailing uh, Biden by tens of thousands of votes. In in 2000, when the whole election came down to Florida, which is you know just one state, um, you had a margin at the end of the day that was like 537 votes out of 6 million or so cast in Florida. I mean, that's a razor thin margin. That's like a statistical tie. That's close. You know, 20,000 votes or 30,000 votes or whatever it is in Wisconsin and Michigan, it's just not the same kind of scale. And like traditionally recounts, you know, which are fairly common, by the way, uh, don't change the outcome of an election when the two candidates are that far apart. So that's one big difference. I think another big difference is in 2000, what we saw was all of the TV networks, the news networks, uh, getting it wrong on election night. They called initially, they called Florida for Gore, then they took it back. Then they called it for Bush. And, and everyone thought that that was it. Everyone thought that Bush was the president-elect. A lot of people went to bed thinking that Bush was the president-elect. But then in the middle of the night, you know, after reviewing the data, all the networks pulled that call back and, you know, undid the outcome. Gore, who had called Bush, uh, had to call him back and, and unconcede. You know, and in this case, we we went into this process sort of with eyes open, with no kind of narrative built into it that one side or the other you know, was trying to undo the election until then, you know, until we got an actual call that, you know, that's Saturday morning, I think it was when when all the networks called it for Biden. But I guess but pollsters are still wrong at the end of the day. So it's kind of like we didn't really learn much from it because it just seems like it only confirmed that the polls and everything that we know were still invalid. Yeah, I mean, you know, the polling question is, is kind of a separate issue, right? It's like, what can we conclude from the folks who are answering the phone and, and answering pollsters questions about who they're really going to vote for. And, you know, I think a big problem that pollsters faced this time around, as with 2016, was that, you know, seems like Trump voters are just being underrepresented in those polls. Uh, And that's kind of separate, right, from like the question of like how to count votes, because once you're counting votes, you know, there are ballots to, to look at. There are real, mm-hmm. out, you know, there are real results to be comparing. And so it's it's a little bit less sort of hypothetical than, than the pre-election polls. Yeah. Yeah. Again, we're talking to Leon Nafok, the co-creator of the podcast fiasco, Bush versus Gore. So have recounts ever actually changed the results of an election besides what we saw with Bush versus Gore? Yeah. I mean, look, there are there are recounts, like I said, fairly routinely. Generally, they're, they're happening at, at like lower levels than the presidency. And I'm not like a total scholar on recount history yeah. but you know there are people who are and like one really cool thing we learned when we when we did the, the, the podcast was you know when it became clear the night of election day that it was going to be this close and that there would be a recount in Florida you know the Gore side and the Bush side both like enlisted their resident ex- uh, recount experts and uh, my favorite like moment in the whole story is all the Gore people are flying down to Florida from, you know, from wherever they are, Washington, D.C. or Tennessee, where, where Gore was based. They're flying in uh, Joe Lieberman's plane. They christened it Recount One. And uh, the recount experts who they brought in, like, were reading instructions for how to conduct or, you know, how to how to handle a recount over the airplane intercom while all the Gore, like, staffers and lawyers were taking notes in their seats. I love that. Well, thank you for sharing that. <laughs> um, anything else we can learn from the past or have we ever really learned anything at this point? (laughs) I think we learned some things. I mean, I think, you know, it it, it was interesting to see like Mike Pompeo 
uh, the Secretary of State referenced 2000, as you mentioned, a lot of Republicans have been bringing it up. And I think what they're sort of trying to, to get at is that, like, there's nothing weird about what's going on. There's nothing unusual. We're not doing anything crazy by asking for these recounts or by asking for these audits. Like, this is just, you know, it's happened before. It happened in 2000. It's fine. Right. But I think it's, it's a real, like, attempt to, like, normalize what's happening when it really is not normal at all. I mean, Biden won this election by a lot, both in the popular vote and, you know, with the Electoral College. Yep. Well, thank you again for joining us for this. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. Again, that was Leon Nafok, the co-creator of the podcast Fiasco, Bush versus Gore. You can find his podcast on the radio.com website. Just search Fiasco, Bush versus Gore. Thanks again. Thank now coming up, people are getting COVID in places they thought were safe. We discuss that next in two minutes. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan, the new Channel Q. First it was masks and now Thanksgiving oppression is here. How ironic is that, Ryan, considering where Thanksgiving came from? But that's for another let's go there. Yeah, right. Let's stay on topic. Right. <laughs> the latest talking point from conservatives who are angry about the restrictions because of the rise in COVID-19 is that we're all going to die. And this might be your grandparents' last one. And here is COVID task force advisor, Dr. Scott Atlas. On that. And this kind of isolation is one of the unspoken tragedies of the elderly who are now being told, don't see your family at Thanksgiving. For many people, this is their final Thanksgiving, believe it or not. What are we doing here? I think we have to have a policy, which I have been advocating, which is a whole person, whole health policy. It's not about just stopping cases of COVID. We have to talk about the damage of the policy itself. So what does the federal government do? It's what I've advised. Yeah. So what's your take on this? Uh, I can't believe that's uh, conservatives last creative take. It feels like they are really just pulling it out of the darkest part of their cracks, to be quite honest. And I don't know if I could say that, but I said it. It just is so weird that people are, you know, at this point being like, well, just go visit your family. You know, they're going to die anyway. It's like, are you kidding me? And it also reminds me on the flip side, what conservatives are doing to try to basically demonize Democrats or Dr. Mm -hmm. Anthony Fauci. Something happened on CNN or Earlier this week where Jake uh, Tapper, he basically was like, Christmas is probably not going to be possible. And conservatives were attacking him, saying Jake Tapper does not get to tell me whether or not my family celebrates the birth of Jesus Christ. And it's like, are you kidding me? The context here is whether we'll be able to have a vaccine by Christmas and we'll be able to be safely able to observe and celebrate Christmas together with our families. If not, we just have to be separate. It is what it is. Because you know what's even more sad than obviously the loneliness, which is real and mental health issues, which is real, by the way, is becoming part of a statistic that is mind boggling to even wrap our minds around that what a quarter of a million Americans have died because of this and decisions not just the administration has made, but each of us has made and not taking accountability for that. Uh, Now, finally, here's Fox's Charles Payne, who continued with this. This, One of the big overarching stories with all of this has been the isolation story, the separation of families uh, and and how important the role that is. The mental the mental fatigue. Politicians don't care. I know personally what's happened. Uh, You know, that that this is the this is the day. This Thanksgiving is when we need each other more than ever before. And the notion that you're going to come to my house and count how many people are there, that is separation of families. And just ending with this idea of they're trying to separate families. Again, a bit tone deaf here. 
considering the topic of separation of families in America. We're not going to go there right now. That's another show again. (laughs) And my thing is, if this is all this task force has to offer of just being like, accept what it is. I mean, it reminds us not too long ago, Mark Meadows basically was waving the white flag saying that he wasn't, you know, this, we're not going to be able to do anything about the coronavirus at this point. It feels like this administration has given up. We've seen it time and time again. And Mike Pence is still on vacation. Donald Trump is only worried about the election that he lost. And so at this point, we are in it by ourselves and we all need to come together and just realize that we're going to have to make some sacrifices and we're all doing it. And it's just what it is so we can get out of this. It's literally one Thanksgiving, one holiday. I know this feels very long, this whole experience. Yeah, it's, but like, guess what? There are families that are actually separated that will never see each other, even at a distance. And there's actual countries where they are actually living in oppression. And living one more day is like a win. So let's just have some gratitude. And that's what Thanksgiving is all about for actually where we are and the fact that we're alive and we're here today. Now, uh, coming up on the show, FDA's first rapid virus test that gives results at home. More details on that next on Trending This Hour. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan, the new Channel Q. Coming up on the show, we have got the co-founder of winbothseats.org. They have brought together all these organizations in Georgia on the ground there to help with the Senate race happening for the Democrats, because, of course, they think this is like a pivotal race happening right now for Democrats to win the Senate. It is. It's so important. I mean, literally everything is risking on this moment. And yeah, I'm happy because they're spending They're one. They're getting so much money like donors are just throwing money their way. It's amazing. Yeah. So stay tuned for that conversation in a bit this hour. But let's get into some what's trending this hour. Governor Christy Noem of South Dakota spoke out about the mask mandates at a press conference earlier today. Uh, I don't want to approach a policy or a mandate just looking to make people feel good. Uh, I want to do good and actually put forward provisions that make a difference for families. And these local communities have some flexibility today that Sioux Falls can make a different decision than Rapid City. Rapid City can make a different decision than Lemon, South Dakota. Watertown can make a different decision than Pure. And and that's what some of these local leaders are doing in, in reacting to the people in the community based on what they want. Yeah, just <laughs> looking to make people feel good. I think it's a bit more than that. Uh, and considering uh, South Dakota has the highest positivity rate in the nation and masks work, she might want to rethink that statement. Yeah, I mean, on the 15th, I think it was reported that 53 South Dakotians died from COVID. And then on the, uh, literally, it's just been going up by the tens. I mean, it's it's so sad. And so for her to say that is literally a smack in the face. Yeah. Also, we were talking to someone who said, like, how do people get coronavirus in like South or North Dakota when it feels like there's they're not even next to each other? So they must have really gone out of their way to be close to each other when they live very far away from each other. It's very rural anyway. Now, um, other coronavirus cases that are soaring again are in Texas. This time, Governor Greg Abbott says no lockdown is coming. The last time case numbers were this high, Governor Abbott closed bars and urged Texans to avoid summer holiday gatherings this time. He says, yeah, it's not happening. Uh, He had this to say uh, to radio host Mark Davis uh, from Dallas. We are not going to have any more lockdowns in the state of Texas. And if he messes this up, you know who might take his job, Ryan? Who? Matthew McConaughey. 
Wait, the actor? The all right, all right, all right. Oh, yeah. You know, <laughs> he's already made the leap from actor to professor. He's very much into advocacy and activism. Well, the Hugh Hewitt show asked him about the proce- prospect of making a gubernatorial run. And he said, I don't know. I mean, that wouldn't be up to me. It would be up to the people more than it would me. So he didn't say no. Oh, my God. How, how clickbaity is that? I so, mean, but. also very politician of him. Right? Yeah. Now, U.S. regulators yesterday allowed emergency use of the first rapid coronavirus test that can be performed entirely at home and deliver results in 30 minutes. How amazing is that? I want some of that. The announcement by the FDA represents a really important step in U.S. efforts to expand testing options for COVID-19 beyond healthcare facilities and testing sites. However, the test will require a prescription, likely limiting its initial use. And finally, Republican House members Dan Newhouse and Doug Lamborn confirmed their COVID-19 diagnosis in separate statements today. Newhouse, a Republican from Washington, said he is experiencing mild symptoms and will, quote, continue to serve the people of central Washington from home while following CDC guidelines. Meanwhile, Lamborn, a Republican from Colorado, is isolating at his home in Colorado Springs, according to a statement from his office. And that was what's trending this hour. What's happening in entertainment news, Ryan? All right. So we got something in the T-Report here. There's an update to the Naya Rivera uh, Rivera story. Um, We thought that was probably done. But actually, her ex-husband, Ryan Dorsey, has filed a wrongful death lawsuit on behalf of their son, claiming that the boat that Naya was in before she uh, drowned was unsafe. Now, the ex-husband filed these docs on behalf of uh, their five-year-old son, claiming that Ventura County is responsible for her death because the boat Naya and Josie were on in Lake Piru did not comply with safety standards. Um, now, apparently when they jumped into the pool, I'm not into the pool, but the lake, Naya yeah. and Josie um, basically didn't have the right equipment to keep the boat safe safely near them. And so the the boat kind of started rocking back and forth forcefully in the current and wind. So that kind of really added on to it not being fully equipped with like, you know, an access ladder, a rope, an anchor, and a radio. Um, No real security mechanism. So that story is going to continue to be developed and updated. And that's your T-Report. I got more coming up next hour. Ah, so sad. All right. Thanks, Ryan, for that. Now coming up, winbothseats.org, organizations coming together in Georgia to continue the spotlight on the Georgia Senate race. That's next. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan, the new Channel Q. Georgia has been in the spotlight throughout this entire election, not just in the presidential race, but as Democrats try to win the Senate, all eyes are on the state and Reverend Raphael Warnock and John Ossoff. One organization has already raised over $1 million to support nonprofits on the ground there. It's called Hashtag Win Both Seats and co-founder and social impact entrepreneur Xander Schultz joins us right now. Thanks for being here. Hey, friends. How's it going? It's good to see both of your faces. Good. Again. I mean, uh, yeah, you too, because you've been so busy. Mm-hmm. I, I, don't, I <laughs> can't even imagine. Thanks for taking time. Was I right for saying over $1 million already? Yeah, we're at, I, I checked this morning. We we're at 1.3 this morning. Okay. Woo! So, so let's talk about what Win Both Seats is. Yeah, right on. I mean, really, two things became obvious recently. One, Georgia and many of the swing states was one because... Black and brown organizers worked their ass off and got folks to turn out in Philadelphia, in Detroit, in Atlanta, uh, and all over those swing states. Two, we were having a runoff in Georgia, which 
just turned blue for the first time in a while, mm-hmm. thanks to those Since folks. Bill Clinton. Uh, St- Stacey Abrams is being rightly coronated <laughs> as the queen of this election cycle, uh, rightly so. And so the logic goes, if we want to win these two seats that you were just talking about, and in doing so, have control of the Senate or a loose control of the Senate, as Kamala would be the tie-breaking 50-50 vote, then the best thing to do is fund the same black and brown organizers that won the state last time. And so we put together a, when I say we, smarter folks than myself, that no one wants the, like this random white tech bro to put together to decide which, which black organizers should get money. Um, <laughs> but my good friends at Movement Voter Pack helped me put together a syndicate of 16 orgs, some state-based, some regional-based, some national-based that are all focusing their attention on turning out the vote in Georgia. And so we launched this initiative called Wimbo Seats, wimboseats.org, so people could make one donation and quickly fund that syndicate. We knew Warnock and Ossoff were going to get a lot of money, right? Everyone's turning their attention there. People fund candidates. It's, in my opinion, it's not the best investment, but people that's what people do. Stacey Abrams was getting a lot of attention. And uh, so we knew Fair Fight was going to get a good deal of funding. Fair Fight's in our portfolio as well. They're one of the 16. Wow. But we know there's all these other orgs that maybe people haven't heard of. New Georgia Project, Black Voters Matter, Black Male Voter Project, Care in Action, all of these great orgs uh, that are also going to be important to turning the state blue. Do, is it flipping anymore? Do, does this conta- count as a continuation uh, of flipping or yeah, keeping it blue? I think it does because that's my <laughs> that's my yeah. question, right? During this process, as you're seeing these local organizers, I feel like there has been kind of a shift in how people are engaging with politics. And do you think yes. that shift is here to stay moving forward? Do you think people are going to continue to want to be involved from what you're seeing? So here's the cool thing. One, not, nothing's really here to stay, but it is cool we're having a moment where I think relational organizing, community organizing, especially in black and brown communities, is being recognized as a good institutional investment. You're going to see big foundations and big, bigger, larger groups donate at a much higher clip than they've donated at the past. Two, you know, in a lot of ways, the unions played a really important role in our country for a long time. And a lot of poor people are no longer organized by their job. And who knows if like the job was even the best organizing place to begin with in that like a uh, black, you know, car mechanic in Detroit and a white car mechanic in Detroit maybe had a lot of different problems and everything. And so these these organizers, they're different than unions, but in a lot of ways, they're building this collective power. And that's an asset they get to keep. That doesn't get broken down after this election cycle. I was with Desmond Mead, who runs the FRC, yeah. uh, Florida Rights Restoration Coalition, on election night down in Florida. And anyone running for governor in Florida wants to be friends with Desmond Mead. You know how you, you get Desmond Mead and his 1.5 million formerly incarcerated people's votes? You have a really good criminal justice reform platform. Mm. You have a really good racial justice platform. That's one of the largest groups in Florida. I don't know if you can win Florida without at least impressing some of the folks from their contingency. And so all of a sudden you go from, you know, these people being marginalized to candidates, especially when you think about primaries, have, have to be impressive to them. And the ways you be impressive is you have much better progressive policies when it comes to racial justice, criminal justice reform, these things. Uh, And so that's what's really exciting to me is say the funding goes away one day, we're building these like big, big uh, Mm -hmm. groups, these constituencies that can um, continue to uh, dictate what policy is. And then, you know, sooner, I mean, some are already doing this, but actually run candidates 
from their community, right? right. And we saw that. Well, what's your face? Corey Bush from St. Louis just won yes. the South election cycle, mm-hmm. which was a big victory. Love and her. so we're seeing that, right? As yeah. these groups have more power, they can actually put folks in office that are of them, not just folks they approve of. Yeah. Again, you're hearing from social impact entrepreneur Xander Schultz. So what did you learn from other viral campaigns you created for the election, like Defeat by Tweet, in organizing this and, and how you're looking at these movements moving forward? Yeah, so this one was... A little bit different in that defeat by tweet we were building like recurring donors and we we wanted to you know have something that lasted for three four five months and then na- now it's ongoing and and we're gonna keep it around for the next election cycle where by but the way one- people can donate and then for every donald trump tweet is yeah a you donate a penny or two every time trump i know you're making some money yeah, we, we raised $1.5 million last month with that initiative. And so th- that's going well. And that's continuing to fund half of the orgs in that fund are in Winbo seats. Uh, the other half are in other important swing states. Well, Xander Schultz, we can continue talking about this forever. You're amazing. So much knowledge, so much incredible work. We appreciate you for joining us. Appreciate you. Again, that was Xander Schultz from winbothseats.org. Go check it out for more info. Now coming up next, what are the ethics of deliberately infecting volunteers with COVID-19 to test vaccines? Or are there any? We discuss that next in two minutes. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan, the new Channel Q. As the race for the COVID-19 vaccine continues, there's human challenge trials happening right now that are very controversial. And here to tell us more is virologist and affiliate of Georgetown's Global Health Science and Security, Dr. Angela Rasmussen. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks so much for having me. So what is a human challenge trial and how does it differ from a traditional vaccine trial? So a a human challenge trial is a trial in which people are vaccinated, um, sometimes given a control vaccine also, and then deliberately infected with the virus that they're being vaccinated against. And that's to determine if that vaccine is protective um, in a situation where you can control uh, the the circumstances under which a person in that trial is infected. In a traditional trial, um, a phase three clinical trial, such as the ones that we're hearing data from these days, what they do is they enroll thousands, um, tens of thousands sometimes of participants, and then they give them either the vaccine that's being tested or they give them a control or placebo vaccine, and they effectively send them out back into the world to live their normal lives. And in the course of those lives, some of them will become infected. And by looking at the number of cases uh, that received either the control or the vaccine, they can make a determination about efficacy. But there's no intentional exposure or infection during a conventional phase three clinical trial. Yeah, and we actually found you from a Vox.com article, which I really loved. And you talked about this idea of being skeptic because are volunteers truly giving their consent to these trials? Let's have that discussion about consent in a moment like this. Yeah, so that's my biggest concern with the, the challenge trials is really twofold. So informed consent is, a critical principle of performing any type of medical research ethically. And, you know, this is a brand new virus. I mean, it it feels like it's been with us forever, but it really is, is less than a year that we've known about this virus. So we don't know a lot about the long-term effects of having it. We certainly know that obviously you can die from this virus and we know what some of the risk factors are for having a very negative outcome in terms of mortality, but we really don't know that much. Uh, We're starting to get some more evidence though, that people, even people who have mild um, disease when they are infected with SARS coronavirus 2 can have really lasting complications and problems 
what's starting to be called long COVID or long haulers. And that's happening in, in quite a large proportion of people. We still don't really know much about the risk factors that predisposes somebody to that. Um, but certainly death is not the only potential negative outcome from being infected with this virus. So it's very difficult for me to see how you could truly obtain informed consent of the risk for the risks that come with a challenge trial if we don't entirely know what those risks are. Mm, that's so interesting and very worrisome too. Again, we're talking to virologist Dr. Angela Rasmussen right now about uh, these human vaccine trials. So how does someone get involved with something like this? And like, do they get paid? What goes down? So for a human challenge trial and a regular vaccine trial, um, I think the process is relatively similar. You would enroll for the trial and human challenge trials are done for some other uh, viruses and other vaccines and um, for influenza for example, they, they sometimes do human challenge trials. But that's really, it's really important to note that those viruses are really well studied. And we know a lot more about the risks associated with being deliberately infected with those. For these human challenge trials that have been proposed, there aren't any going on right now as we speak, but there is a trial that's planned for January in the United Kingdom, in which they are planning to pay participants and people should definitely be compensated for participating in something like that but it also raises the question of whether that would incentivize people who might need the money more um, to participate whether right. they feel comfortable doing so or not just because there is that financial incentive so there are some ethical issues uh, around that as well. Yeah, because I feel like giving, like paying volunteers just feels exploitative or something. Like it just doesn't feel right. But would a tr like an actual human trial really actually help us scientifically though? Yeah, so that's my other, that's my other major problem with the, the proposed human challenge studies is that they've been presented as a way to accelerate the vaccine development process. Well, first of all, they're not doing that for the vaccines that have already gone into phase three clinical trials. Um, but second of all, they'd be using a population only of people who are known to be low risk for mortality from COVID-19. So young, healthy people, if they really want to be careful about being low risk, they would exclude all men from the trial, since there's also a very, a very clear sex bias that's been observed in which men are much more uh, susceptible to severe disease and death. So hmm. it would only be looking at a small fraction of people and exclude the people that are most vulnerable to severe COVID. Um, and you wouldn't be able to tell how well those vaccines are working in those people. In older people, in HIV positive or other immunocompromised populations, that's really important because we know that those are major risk factors for developing against severe COVID-19. You wanna make sure that the vaccine works, especially in those high risk groups of people. You might not be able to tell that when you're doing a human challenge study with just uh, young, healthy volunteers. All right, well, thank you for joining us for this and for your knowledge around the subject and your work. Oh, it's my pleasure, anytime. That was virologist, Dr. Angela Rasmussen. Now coming up, what's it like to participate in a clinical trial? Our own Alex D joins us for her experience being part of one next in two minutes. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan, the new Channel Q. Now, we've been discussing clinical trials for the COVID-19 vaccine, and our very own DJ Alex D, also a producer for Loveline, has been part of one. Thanks for being here to share your experience. Hi, guys. I miss you guys so much. Uh, now, so, DJ Alex D, you got a tail or yes. something now? <laughs> Did you grow? Yeah, there's actually a couple of FBI agents parked outside in a black van. 
So don't, so don't get scared if you come over. <laughs> okay, let's get into this. Like, how or when did you decide to participate in this? How does this even work? Do they reach out to you or you find them? No, so I was actually reading an article um, and they said, you know, uh, if you want to be a part of the trial, go ahead and sign up here. And this was probably back in like June or July. So I was like, oh, okay, for sure. Like, whatever. I mean, they're, look, they're probably not going to reach out to me, but let me just try. So I filled out the little questionnaire. It, it it was maybe like 10 to 15 questions about your health or whatever. And like the amount of people you see daily and stuff like that. And so I hadn't heard anything for a couple months. Then in early September, they reached out to me and they were like, hey, can you come in next week and uh, get your first shot? So I was like, wow, okay, cool. Sounds good. So I went in and got the first shot done in September. Um, and the trial I'm doing is a two-part shot. So I got the second shot in late October. So I haven't caught COVID yet. So it looks like it's working. Yeah. I mean, I guess you sound really calm. Like, were you not yeah. nervous about that experience, especially because as COVID's changing and these things, you know, we're finding out it's having lasting effects. Were you nervous at all? I mean, this isn't like a good way to put it, but this was kind of my rattle. Like we eat McDonald's hamburgers. So I'm guessing that whatever's in the shot is not worse than that. Okay. <laughs> so like, my body, like, I was like, my body can take it. I'm not worried about my body. But yeah, I mean, that thought definitely went through my head. Okay. Okay. Uh, again, Alex D is with us right now, our very own talking about the, the fact that she's on a clinical trial for a COVID-19 vaccine. So you're getting paid, we assume, and what's the process? For mine, it's a two-year trial. Um, okay. And so I got the first shot in September. Um, I had to take a daily journal and then it was once a month visits. So I did a visit in September, did a visit in October. That's where I got both of the shots. And then I did my third visit a week ago, ago or so. And then after that, I check in once a week um, on this like online journal they have me do. Then they call me every six months for the next two years to make sure nothing crazy has happened. I haven't grown a third arm or anything yeah. like that. Are you able to live your life like normally, especially th at this moment where you're kind of getting injected with stuff? You know what? They they said like, don't change your routine. Obviously still mm -hmm. be safe. Because at the end of the day, you know, the trial, they didn't give the vaccine to everybody. It was a one-to-one -one ratio. So 50% of the people in this trial got it and 50% did it. Oh, okay, okay. So, so wow. when I came back oh, after my shots, I was experiencing... Um, a lot of fatigue, like especially the second shot, mm. I was tired for two days. Oh. And so when I came back, I asked them, I was like, hey, are you able to tell me yet if I got the shot or not? Because as these shots actually become available, like, do I need to actually go get it? And they were like, we can't really tell you that because they don't use names. They just use like code numbers or whatever. Mm -hmm. So like, we can't really tell you that, but we can tell you that your symptoms were consistent with somebody who has gotten it. And I was like, okay, Fascinating. I'm going to that as I'm, I'm good to go. Wow. All right. All right. So w would you recommend other people do this? It's definitely not for everybody. I think if you have really high anxiety, like I could see that first night, like even my anxiety was kind of kicking, but I was like, you know what? It's, it's, it's like the flu shot. When you get the flu, your, you know, your body reacts like this is another shot. Like don't overreact. But I would, I mean, I don't know if I can do another one, yeah, you, but, but I yeah. would do it again. Wow, a hero. We've got a hero among us. Thank you so uh, much for being you, here you, and sharing your story. Know. You can listen to What's Poppin' with DJ Alex D right here on Channel Q. Thanks again for joining us. Now, coming up, Kaylee McEnany proved she doesn't know what Orwellian means. The clip next on What's Trending This Hour. 
Let's go there with Shira and Ryan, the new Channel Q. Coming up on the show, we're going to talk about the latest pet trend in 2020, snails. Shira, this is a story that you have pitched. It's real. I'm here for the ride. You're talking about people have pet snails. Gross, but okay, we'll see. Yeah, it's not just a pitch. I mean, it was a a story in The Guardian. So they are legit. (laughs) Even The Guardian can make mistakes, Shira. No. (laughs) Well, listen, we're going to be getting into that and more right after what's trending this hour. But let's get into some headlines. Uh, Kaylee McEnany uh, this morning was on Fox and Friends. I mean, she's becoming a Fox News regular. It's pretty obvious where she's going after this uh, this job at the White House is over. She went on to complain about Democratic governors who are imposing restrictions on Thanksgiving in response to the ever worsening coronavirus pandemic. Uh, a lot of the guidelines you're seeing are Orwellian. Um, let me start by saying the CDC has put out considerations as we prepare to go about Thanksgiving, about socially distancing, wearing masks, doing what you can. And there's a whole list, a page of very good considerations. And in that, they say, uh, we're not recommending a certain number of people, but we are giving considerations that you should put in place. And I think that's the American way. The American people know how to protect their health. We've uh, dealt with COVID for many months, but it's Orwellian in a place like Oregon to say, if you gather uh, in numbers more than six, we might come to your house and right. arrest you and you get 30 days of jail time. That's not the American way. Uh, we don't lose our freedom in this country. We make responsible health decisions as individuals. And let's um, highlight this point she makes. The American people know how to protect their health. Really? Is that true? Because cases are rising faster than ever. More than 160,000 new infections reported in the past 24 hours alone. And as of today, Today, 250,000 Americans are dead from this virus and the year isn't even over. Shira, this is the way that they can make it like, oh, we don't have to take responsibility. People can control themselves. They are responsible of themselves. And it's the worst thing to come from a leader or a leader, someone in the leadership position. It really means, oh, I don't have anything to do with you. I I honestly don't care about you. I don't care about the well-being of this country. And y'all can handle yourselves. You're you're grown people. You're adults. You know, why not? It's ridiculous. Uh, True. And you know what's more Orwellian, you know, which means a dystopian, basically stripping reproductive rights and LGBTQ plus rights from human beings and just, you know, human rights being questioned here in this country. That is more Orwellian and dystopian if you look that up. Is that word of the day for you? It is. Take a (laughs) shot every time I say it. Now, (laughs) Minnesota Governor Tim Waltz has announced new COVID restrictions that will impact social gatherings, restaurants, gyms, and sports beginning Friday at 11.59 p.m. In-person social gatherings without people outside of your household are prohibited. Bars and restaurants will have to go takeout. Only gyms and entertainment spaces will need to close and adult and youth sports will be put on pause. College and pro sports are exempt, which is interesting. Wedding receptions. Yeah. uh, Wedding receptions, private parties and celebrations will also be restricted. Here's what he had to say. So we are at a critical point and it's time for us to do it again. So this pause is what we're going to ask you to do. It's going to start at this Friday at 1159 and it's social gatherings with other households. Don't bring other households in. Don't bring, and this is my, I have a big family. Um, we do a lot of things together. Um, that's not going to be possible. It's immediate family. Um, we're going to stop in-person dining, but I want to be clear, and I'll stress this a little more later, order out. Make sure we're spending money locally in these businesses. Make sure we get there. But You know, 
Ryan, this is interesting. It's not a lockdown here. It's a pause. Do you like the marketing with that? It's not a lockdown. It's a pause. <laughs> it's just a pause of life, you know? Exactly. No, it's, it was really smart the way he said it. Just the press play or press pause. It's yes, so, exactly. So uh, and those restrictions are in place in Minnesota until Friday, December 18th. And then I guess they're going to see where the numbers are from that point and then how we're going to approach Christmas. And that was what's trending this hour. What's happening in entertainment news, Ryan? All right, let's dive into the T-Report. Lana Del Rey is responding to some backlash for wearing a mesh-looking face mask last month to a public event with fans <laughs> in Los Angeles. So uh, I guess the singer uh, tweeted uh, a reply to an article posted by the Michigan Daily uh, which I, I don't know if that's a big publication, but she's paying attention to it. Uh, Lana Del Rey, this is what the Michigan Daily said. Lana Del Rey wore a mesh mask. What now? <laughs> and so um, I guess she was kind of pissed about it because she responded sarcastically saying, great article. The mask had plastic on the inside. They're commonly sewn in by stylists these days. She says, I don't generally respond to articles because I don't care, but there you go. Same okay. goes for everyone's mask in my video. I'm lucky enough to have a team of people who can do that. I'm sorry, your plastic and your mesh is not going to like keep you safe from the pandemic. Like you look dumb wearing a mesh looking mask. Like, are you like, seriously, it makes no sense. Like, you know, common sense and actually she received so much criticism online after wearing that because she was at a Barnes and Nobles where she was meeting fans so she could have uh -huh. had the possibility of like obviously getting her fans sick so that's completely ridiculous it's fashion <laughs> yeah, I guess it's fashion. But no, she shared a video on Instagram from an impromptu signing for her poetry book, uh, Violet Bent Backwards Over the Grass is the title, on October 2nd. And then that's when everything kind of just blew up up. And of course, I got another story in the T-Report. Michael B. Jordan, honey, is people's sexiest man alive. I mean, mm. he is hot. He's very, very hot. Oh, he has come a long way. Yes. Definitely. He really he has. hotter. He really has. It's kind of crazy because obviously, you know, last year was John Legend. The year before was Idris Elba. And um, I think the past five years so far have been all black men. So I think yeah. people are doing something special. Uh -huh. But here's Michael B. Jordan talking about the moment. Um, of course, he's saying that he's being made fun of. He's going to be made fun of once this drops. His group chats are going to basically just light him up, honey. Here's that. What's going on? My name is Michael B. Jordan, and I am this year's sexiest man alive. I think I'm gonna get the most grief from everybody, from my agents, my best friends, uh, you know, any, any any one of my my guy friends, everybody in the group chat. <laughs> the group chat is gonna go crazy when this comes out. Ah, uh, I mean. I have to say one thing, though. The video, what? if you want to check it out, if him talking about it, wearechannelq.com, it's too many clothes. I feel like he needs to be more shirtless or more naked. I'm sorry. Prove that you're the sexiest man alive. Wow. You, you, you're only sexy if you have a shirt off? Is that what you're saying? Pretty much, especially when you look like Michael B. Jordan. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan, the new Channel Q. You've got snail. Why the best pet of 2020 is slow and slimy. That's the headline from a recent Guardian article. And one of the individuals featured in this article is comedian and host of Bitch in Kitchen, Nadia G. She joins us right now. Thanks, Nadia, for joining us for this very uh, unique subject matter. Right? My pleasure. So did you ever think you'd be featured in The Guardian for owning a snail? Absolutely not. 
This was not even a remote possibility. Uh, frankly, I'm, I'm still dumbfounded at how this happened. <laughs> I mean, to be honest, I couldn't imagine it happening to anyone else besides you. So, so <laughs> tell us what this snail companion of yours is like. How did you decide that Leroy the snail was like your soulmate? Ryan, it, you know, lockdown can do crazy things to people. Um, but honestly, like Leroy decided that he was going to be my soulmate. He hitchhiked a ride. <laughs> on an ivy plant. You know how we've all become obsessed with plants, bringing the outdoors in and all that. He hitchhiked a ride on a plant, showed up in my space, and I was like, what am I going to do with this slimy nugget? So I named him Leroy. And, and so this is officially a pet of yours. Can you talk about what's behind this snail pet trend? It, because it's not just you. Yeah, I know. Snails are, snails are so hot right now. <laughs> <laughs> snails are really hot right now yeah yeah for sure um, no so, so i think why um and at least why i fell in love with uh snails and and leroy in particular is that it really forces you to slow down it's as simple as that you know you turn on some piano jazz or some lo-fi hip-hop and just watch a snail it's so calming it is like nature's xanax but i guess out of any other pet you could have had a snail is it easy to take care of one it feels like they don't have the longest lifespan well actually ryan you'd be surprised in nature they only live about a year because they're so slow and succulent mm -hmm. <laughs> But in captivity, these suckers can live anywhere from five to 15 years. Wow. Yeah, so they do have a long lifespan. Now, are they easy to take care of? Uh, yeah, they're quite easy to take care of. Um, but you, you, you know, you need to provide them with a few basic things, which is enough space um, and not some nasty uh, stained Tupperware container. No, you have to get them a nice enclosure or a terrarium, uh, filtered water. Uh, and then you want to do a mix of organic cocoa coir and sphagnum moss. Uh, listen, I know way too oh, much about this. Yes, you've done your research. This is amazing. I become, an, I become a snack expert. <laughs> Got it. Again, you're hearing from comedian and host Nadia G, who has jumped on the snail trend, has a snail as a pet. Why do you think the snails have become so much so part of pandemic pop culture, Nadia? They're slow and they force you to take it slow. You know, you you really have no choice when you have a snail but to work on your patience. And uh, and frankly, I, I think it, it's super important for people to learn how to slow down these days, because if you're still raring to go, if you're still, you know, can't wait for your next meeting, your next pitch, you're, you're going to be, you know, you're going to get hella depressed right. because, you know, this, this pandemic isn't going away anytime soon. And, you know, the, the rampant death aside, it has, it, it, it has been a good opportunity for us to learn how to get back um, to, to quiet quieter stuff that can be just as gratifying as the crazy big stuff out there. 
Yeah, and it's so crazy because it feels like you're becoming known as like the cottage core queen. Could you explain like what that that trend is and how you're kind of like it's basically changing your life? Absolutely. So the cottage core is kind of getting back to basics. Mm -hmm. And this is what we've had to do during this pandemic, whether it's like appreciating new growth on a plant or learning how to do some punk macrame, uh, you know, taking care of a snail or two or having fun with your pets. Um, you know, it, essentially it's urban homesteading. And this this really is a time to kind of delve into cooking and crafts and DIY um, and uh, and and having a good time with with this stuff as opposed to always raring for some kind of huge adrenaline hit from the outside world. You know, that, it's very inspiring because I've been wanting to get a dog. A dog's a lot of work, so maybe I should opt for a snail. A bit it easier. Really. They really are lovely pets, Shira, and they're also super expressive. You wouldn't really? expect it. Yeah, they really are. And they're easy to understand, too. Well, Nadiji, thank you so much for opening up our um, awareness today. Really, we appreciate it. My pleasure. Again, that was comedian and host of Bitch and Kitchen, Nadia G. Now coming up on the show, a new generation of volunteers are rescuing historic black cemeteries. That is next on our Yaz Queen of the Day. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan, the new Channel Q. We're wrapping up the show as we always do with our Yaz Queen of the Day. Yes, Queen. Okay, I hear you singing. Yeah, that was a singing moment to give a clue to our Yes Queen. Yes, because actually Ryan was in choir a lot. He can get those notes. I'm just saying. Thank you. Thank you. Everyone knows I'm perfect. Yeah, of course. (laughs) Uh, Now, this Yasmin goes to YouTube singer Jordan Rabjohn and his mom, Catherine. They're from the UK. They posted their version of the popular hit called Rise Up. It's Andra Day's song Mm -hmm. uh, to help spread some positivity and love during these difficult times. And let me tell you, we both got chills listening to this. I just want to hug my mom, but I can't because she's really far away. Oh, I know. You know, I've actually been shout out to Google Duo because Google Duo has been so great because me and my mom doesn't have an iPhone. She refuses to get oh. one. Mm-hmm. And so we I, we have no time to FaceTime. And so we normally get on Zoom. But Google Duo has allowed us. And this is not a sponsorship, by Google the way. Google Duo? Are you talking about Google Meets? Yeah. Like Google Duo is that that's the name of the iPhone or the app that you can download oh, got it. and it can connect that. you. It's like a FaceTime for an Android. And so me and my mom have literally been using it since last night, every single time. We don't even call it, like pick up the phone anymore. We just dial each other and just answer on FaceTime. It's so wonderful. Aww. And I get to see her. What about just WhatsApp? Yeah, that's going to be too difficult Video. to try to get her like set up. So I, I'm just, <laughs> I'm, give, I'm doing what she, she knows best, right? It's that's, a good recommendation. Yes, you should try Shout out to Google. Yeah, there you go. All right. Well, that does it for our show and our Yes Queen of the Day. Yes, Queen. But we'll be back tomorrow, same time here live on Channel Q, 4 to 7 p.m. Pacific, 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern. We're going to be talking about how debt collectors can now hit you up on social media. Mm -hmm. It's a story and it's going to embarrass a lot of folks out there. 
Yikes. And of course, more what's trending in the news. And if you ever miss any of our shows or interviews, we post everything as a podcast. Just go to the radio.com app, search Let's Go There to find the podcast, or of course, where all podcasts are available. Yeah, to join our podcast family. And a reminder to listen to Loveline with Dr. Chris right after our show, Monday through Thursday, right here on Channel Q. Tonight on their show, they're going to be covering how to create a mental health day. Oh, I was like, oh, okay. yeah, so- how to create a mental health day. Sorry, I was just reading this right here. <laughs> well, I mean, that's going to be some good stuff because we need to know about that. Yeah, can I? Can you give me some tips, please? please? We all need that right now. So hopefully you're giving yourself some love and just some grace and space because uh, we're all going through it. That it's is so for important. Sure. Yep. And we are sending you love and light. And honey, remember to slay. See you tomorrow. Have a great night. Bye, y'all. Let's go there with Shira Lazar and Ryan Mitchell on Channel Q. Watch out how debt collectors can now hit you up on social media. Plus how brunch became political. So wait, no more bottomless mimosas? Ryan. Listen live weekdays 4 to 7 p.m. Pacific, 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern on Channel Q. Or on your own time with the Let's Go There podcast on the Radio.com app.